I can only speak to our schools in particular, as well as the New York area schools, but all medical students have been pulled from all rotations involving patient care. Oh my God. Yeah. Our learning has been transitioned into early online stuff. Yeah. All virtual? Even yeah. like the emergency room or like... That was the first one that got pulled actually, because that's the highest Everything. exposure. Yeah, yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shrinking Burnout. We're so excited to introduce two medical students from New York Medical College, a major medical school in the Northeast. My name is Kate. Tom and I are third-year students. I am planning on applying into a psychiatry residency and currently at home doing some virtual clerkships and trying to stay sane during the pandemic. Hey, everyone. My name is Tom. I'm also a third-year medical student like Kate. I am also interested in all things mental health, and currently I am an avid baker that's trying out new recipes every day since the pandemic. Cool. I think what we wanted to talk about first is just the sense of medical student culture and how it can possibly contribute to clinician burnout. So I think to understand medical student burnout and medical student mental health, we actually have to kind of go back to our pre-med experience. I think that the stigma for seeking help is 100% there in medical students. But just because the process of getting into medical school is such a competitive one that during your college years, when you're applying to medical school, the idea of having to do better than the person next to you and just having to be perfect is really ingrained into your your head. Um, Because at that time, you know, success equals whether or not you'll be able to pursue your dream of becoming a doctor. So it's very high stakes. You know, so in general, you end up with a starting class of medical students who are used to being really high achievers, but also have this framework of malignant perfectionism to various degrees. And anything that gives them the perception that you're not doing as well as everyone else is, including seeking help, is perceived by yourself as a weakness. So I think that overall, as future healthcare providers, medical students intellectually understand that there's no shame in seeking help. But at the same time, we constantly battle against our own subconscious mindset and personal stigma against speaking about these problems or getting help when we need it. A lot of things to potentially talk about there. The first thing I wanted to ask you to elaborate more is the concept of malignant professionalism. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, of course, I'm no expert in this topic, but from my understanding, it's that we have, you know, as high achievers, this drive towards doing well, doing the best that we can. But, and that's usually a motivational force that helps you, you know, get that A or helps you get over a big challenge. But at the same time, when it becomes kind of an obsession or something that holds you back, that's when this drive becomes a negative thing that holds you down rather than empowers you. Just to add to what Tom was saying about the kind of malignant perfectionism, I think a piece of it for me, or that I've observed as we've gone from the low stakes of academia, where getting a wrong answer doesn't endanger anyone's life to the increasing stakes of increasing autonomy as you go through third and fourth year, and increasing levels of responsibility, it can feel like if you make a mistake, you're really putting someone's health at risk, and that can feel threatening to your identity. And so we kind of put on this face and also want to put on a professional face in front of patients. And I think at certain points that can prevent us from being vulnerable with each other and with ourselves and being able to ask for help. 
Okay. Yeah. In terms of this concept of seeking help, I think this is something that even as residents, this is a big issue in terms of just being able to get clinicians the help that they need. They're not willing to seek out appropriate mental health resources. For you guys, in terms of your experiences of seeking help when it comes to either being a medical student or like Tom, you were saying as a pre-med, do you have any personal experiences to describe about that? There was unfortunately a medical student suicide in the New York area when I first started medical school and there was a panel of upperclassmen put together to talk about it. So I went as a first year because I was interested and one of my deans um, reached out to me just to check in. And I remember being pleasantly surprised because mental health was not so openly discussed or encouraged in discussion in some prior academic settings. I felt like the the whole school was really there for me as a brand new student um, processing this tragic local news. The other point it brings up is the fact that even when administration is increasing the number of opportunities or ways to get help, it seems like the barriers to seeking help are still there regardless. It brings up the question of what is it that is an inherent barrier to the way that we're sort of brought up in the culture of medicine that makes it difficult for us to to go and get help. And I think both of you touched on that very important point of us feeling like we always have to be perfect and that that ideology is actually starting way before medical school. I think it starts in undergrad and even before then, because, you know, often all of us are, of course, high achievers. The, The way that you get into medical school is by achieving and doing so consistently. Um, and so that becomes essentially a pattern of behavior and it's hard to break that. Yeah. And I I think what you demonstrated is that there really needs to be a lot of support that's demonstrated from an upper level or from a systemic standpoint from the administration to be able to reach out to their students or the clinicians to be able to say it's okay to reach out for help. Yeah. And I think that not to go too much into social commentary, but as a society in the US, we really uh, put our celebrities, both in the sense of like people who are famous, but as well as people who are successful on a pedestal. And we sort of think of them as these you know, superhuman beings that have like no flaws. So when you think of, you know, like Bill Gates, you think that his life was just like super smooth and everything was an adventure the whole time. But if you actually look at his life, it's not like that. So I think just, it's also, you know, it, it is a medical school thing, but it's also a society thing where we uh, expect those who are successful to only be successful. And Tom, what you're kind of mentioning with celebrities, are you also saying that it kind of applies to medical students, to clinicians, so such that we're expected to be perfect all the time, we can't make mistakes, and admitting something like having anxiety about a test or having an underlying mental disorder or even admitting being burned out is already your omission to say that you're not a perfect individual? Yeah, I think that, you know, it kind of relates to our idea of what a doctor is, where, who a physician is. And I think there's, in some sort of way, by admitting that you have difficulties during the training process, it's almost like, it feels like you're admitting that you're not going to be a good doctor. Have you guys ever tried admitting mistakes in the classroom setting as medical students? What was the response? Tom and I were kind of reflecting on this because we were talking about whether we kind of wanted to share that we had both seeked help from our school's mental health and um, wellness resources. And 
we were saying it's kind of ironic that um, we both want to go into a field that revolves around that help being important and, and beneficial. And yet we had to ask ourselves whether it would potentially hurt us professionally or in any other way to share that openly. So to kind of just give an anecdote about that as well, our, our Department of Student Mental Health and Wellness is in one of the newer buildings on campus. And although I've always been pretty open with friends and peers in speaking about these topics, I remember when I made an appointment to check in, I had this cover story ready that I was going to the gym just in case I ran into anybody because I was picturing you know, having to say to someone casually, you know, I'm going for a quick therapy session or what have you. So I was kind of on edge the whole time I was walking down the hall. And so hopefully we can get to a point where that's not the case. And it's just like going to pick up any other prescription or whatever. No, absolutely. I think it's, it's very important that you bring that up. The idea of having to almost make up a cover story or, or hide it from your peers that you're seeking help When in reality, if you essentially ask the people who are around you, have you sought any of these resources, they'll probably say yes, way more people than you actually expect or think. Um, And I do have like a personal story as well about that. So in medical school, I was very interested in wellness and burnout. And so one of the things that I had started was a peer wellness hotline where fourth year medical students are essentially manning the hotline every day throughout the academic year, including holidays. And the only reason that I decided to start it really was one, because I felt burnt out and I felt like it was really challenging to transition from, say, your second year of med school to your third year, um, going from a totally different environment of just academia to being surrounded um, in a different world. Essentially, clerkships are so different. Um, And so one of the things that really stood out to me was that, you know, I messaged in our Facebook group to see whether there was any interest from some of my friends. By this point, we were fourth years. So I asked them, I was like, you know, did any of you guys feel overwhelmed or feel like there just wasn't enough out there in terms of support during your second and third year? And I got about 100 posts after that, like 100 different people who had commented saying that they really want to be a part of this. And that's like, two thirds of my class. So it's a very heavy, it's a huge number. And sometimes we don't, we often think that we're alone in this, but this is not, you know, a battle to fight alone. It's like a lot of us together are feeling this. Another um, note about the stigma is that our school has implemented a system by which students could reach out to professionals um, electronically and anonymously. And then they'll be provided resources to help them determine next steps based on symptoms and severity. And this has led um, students actually turning more to that department for help, which shows that being anonymous does matter to students. So it's great um, that that was implemented. But again, hopefully we can get to a point where um, there isn't as much fear of breaking that anonymity. I think you guys actually mentioned a really good point. There is something about medical culture in general, or just society in general, such that it's hard to admit weakness. And just a bigger question for me is, why is it that admitting that you have some sort of mental health condition necessarily mean that you have weakness? (laughs) And this goes beyond clinician burnout. This just goes with society's general, maybe stigma against mental health in general. So then the question becomes, how do we change this overall culture where it's okay to say that you have some sort of mental health or you have some sort of anxiety or something like that? 
And that's a that's a really interesting point to to bring up, Andy. And I think I did read one paper that I thought was really interesting where it talked about the idea of uh, implicit and explicit biases. So I think one change that I think is positive that we've seen is that it's become more and more uh, unsavory for people to essentially look down on those who are mentally ill or do have who do struggle with depression, anxiety, and so on and so forth. However, those are more so explicit biases. So those are changing. It's becoming less and less acceptable, I would say, Overall, um, society is moving towards that, but the implicit biases are still remaining. The fact that if you yourself are feeling anxious or depressed, you're much less likely to tell someone about that than say you're going to the hospital for medical treatment every Wednesday or Thursday and you're missing a lot of classes. You'd be more likely to tell someone honestly, yeah, I'm, I'm going to the hospital because I need help for this versus saying I'm going to a counselor, a therapist, psychiatrist. And so it's very interesting that those biases in particular are very, very difficult to let down or destroy. We have all this internal guilt and stigma about not wanting to share about your mental health experiences. But what was the reality? Like what actually ended up happening after you guys sought help? And, you know, were there any repercussions for that? I used our school's uh, counseling services, as well as at some point, an outside counselor, um, and it was of huge benefit to me, I think. Um, you know, I, I think oftentimes in medical school, and especially as you experience things like patient encounters uh, in the clinic, you have a lot to work through. You have a lot to process. Um, and I think that just having someone there to like purely listen and reflect back and help organize your thoughts has been just a tremendous uh, part of how I, you know, kept up with my well-being in medical school, but also how I really felt like I kind of grew as a person as well. Because you, you know, you've discovered new ways to think about things, which actually just kind of levels you up in terms of how you deal with situations. Yeah, I found it really important. And this is something that has become more clear to me over time. And I think I could have done more earlier on in medical school, but it's been important for me to lean on both the administration in various ways, um, the professionals there, and as well as my my friends in medical school, upperclassmen who have been a little bit closer to maybe some of the experiences that can cause that stress, and um, as well as some people outside of medical school, but being able to communicate to family and friends who aren't within the system what it means to be studying for a board exam or um, talking about maybe experiences on the wards in an appropriate way. And so having each kind of level of support and being open with with friends has also, I think, enabled other people to be more open with me. So that's been a foundation for the program that we put together, which really relies on peer leadership. I just wanted to switch gears very briefly and ask you both how things are going during quarantine and what are some changes that you've noticed within your current medical school? So as you know, um, the pandemic has affected every kind of swath of the population, including students at every level. And it's had a pretty, I think, unique effect on each level of medical school. So obviously we can speak to third years, but we've seen this effect all of our friends. Um, Fourth years have had their match days virtually. Basically, their vacations have been canceled and graduation has been virtual. Some of them have been um, starting to work early or volunteering. 
Third years have been pulled from rotations and away rotations at sites outside of our, our home institution, which previously have been a big part of auditioning and exploring different programs have been effectively canceled or discouraged and interviews will be online. So everything's still sort of unfolding, but suffice to say the upcoming application year will be very different than it has been in the past. Now it's May, um, we're coming up on peak season for board exams. So for second and third years who have been planning to take step one and step two of the boards, it's been very stressful and a lot of people are in limbo. Um, many people have had their dates canceled. So that's been pretty overwhelming, I think, on a personal level and systemic level. You guys are third years. Have you guys taken the boards yet? What's going on? For NYMC, most third years will take step two sometime over the summer. And so we're not allowed to take step two until the end of third year, which is June. And our second years um, typically take step one sometime in June. And my understanding right now is that they are not ready to administer the test or the, the school at least is trying to um, give the students some flexibility. I think for listeners who might not be familiar, the board exams, step one, step two, are a huge part of what influences your, I guess, competitiveness when you apply to residency programs, which is, you know, at the forefront of every medical student's minds, safe to say. And the fact that when you'll be able to take it is uncertain is, has been, I think, a big stressor in the part of a lot of medical students. Cause, you know, you work so hard for four years to, you know, ideally train at the best place that you can at the best fit for you. But one of the biggest components has now been kind of thrown into limbo. So you can imagine in terms of your career, how stressful that uncertainty is. Oh, absolutely. I think that that's a good point that you bring up the level of uncertainty. And I think just personally, I can imagine myself if I had to study any longer for step one or step two, I think I would have gone absolutely insane. <laughs> it is an incredibly, and for those who don't know about this exam, it's such a grueling exam to study for step one, especially the amount of material you have to know. It's like unbelievable. And I think I laugh while I say this, but that was one of the toughest periods of, of <laughs> my life, having to study for that test. And I can't imagine, you know, the uncertainty of, of not knowing when you can get it over with and take it and, and move forward with your life. I think that's really hard. Really, to emphasize what everybody has been saying, that the board exams for medical students are probably the biggest thing that a pre, preclinical medical student could really study for. And they're working pretty much all day, all night studying for this test. And to have a lot of uncertainty in terms of when they actually have to take the test or where they're going to have to take the test in terms of administration, it's, it's a huge stressor. And I can't even begin to imagine how it must feel like to be you guys. And the other thing I wanted to bring up that you mentioned was that for the fourth year medical students, uh, the, the fact that they won't be able to, they weren't able to enjoy match day or, you know, graduation just taking myself back to fourth year, that was something that I really looked forward to. Both of those things, plus the vacation in between. <laughs> but having that removed is like, it also an emotionally, it's, it's, it's like a very difficult thing to process. I can't imagine how it must have felt like at that point. I know for me personally, match day was like one of the most emotional moments of my life. It sounds really corny, but it's true. The height of the pandemic, at least the way that we're seeing it now is 
almost falling perfectly in the fourth year celebration period. And it seems like things might calm down just enough for them to get to work in July. (laughs) I guess to also just to speak to kind of the weirdness of being a healthcare professional in training at this time when we're having this kind of cultural conversation um, worldwide about what it means to be in healthcare and kind of some of the ethical questions that come up. We're in this kind of unique position training to be on the front line, but training can't be a priority for us when the hospitals are overburdened. Something that's also really unfortunate for third years is that some won't have any direct clinical exposure to their field of choice before needing to apply. So it kind of remains to be seen how that will influence uh, people's career decisions. Some people will take maybe more research years or even I know some people have actually decided to switch what specialty they want to go into based on everything that's happening, whether it's what they're observing happening during the pandemic or they just can't make the decision based off of the clinical experience that they had so far. People may end up applying more locally. So those are all kind of things that we'll have to watch and, you know, obviously can affect people's mental health as well. So not to forget that. So for third years and fourth years going through clerkships, is it that they are no longer allowed to rotate or some rotations still happening where medical students are able to go and have that more hands-on experience? I can only speak to our schools in particular, as well as the New York area schools, but all medical students have been pulled from all rotations involving patient care. Oh my God. Yeah. Our learning has been transitioned into early online stuff. Yeah. All virtual, even yeah. like the emergency room or like. <laughs> that was the first one that got pulled actually, because that's the highest Everything. exposure. Yeah, yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I think, you know, in one, one hand, you know, we go into medical school making such a big sacrifice towards our careers you know, so that we can explore our careers to the fullest. And the fact that I, for a lot of people, third year is the most critical year that they get informed about and make the decision regarding what they'll do for the rest of their lives. And to have, you know, a third of it or even a half of it kind of unavailable, it can be a huge stressor for a lot of people. You know, we obviously don't want to be ungrateful that, you know, we're safe and everything, but just the fact that career-wise, it it is a big loss, I think. Yeah, I think there have been some mixed reactions because in the beginning, the question was, is there going to be enough personal protective equipment for students? You know, there are some students with immunocompromising conditions or even students who are pregnant, things like that, or who live with parents or people who are vulnerable. And you have to balance providing fair opportunities for each student. And personally, I've been pretty impressed with how nimble and creative the administration has been. Luckily, we live in an age where we have some pretty good technology to be able to do some virtual patient encounters. It's obviously not the same at all. And I think now we're in the phase of more controversy surrounding the best way to reopen in the same way that other industries are having that conversation. So I think it's such an unprecedented time to use a word that's been overused at this point. But I think that nobody's going to be thrilled. But something I've been kind of going back to that one of our deans said that I've been using as kind of a mantra was referring to his time at Tulane during Hurricane Katrina. And he said that he was an an intern or resident at the time. And he said that he did not have the same experience as some other residents in that program, but he learned some very different skills. And 
he saw some things that nobody else had seen going through that same experience. Trying to have that mindset where it's going to be different, but we kind of have to make the most of it. And sort of to add to that, I think that despite everything, there are some positives from the medical student side that have come out of COVID. Yeah, as we're talking about, like medical school is a huge factor in burnout. A lot of medical students experience burnout and mental health issues. Uh, and just the fact that we get a sort of three month block to sort of recenter on ourselves and check in and obviously have a little bit more time to take care of our physical and mental well-being. I think that that has not been the case in medical education ever. So I think that for some students, that's a huge benefit as well. That's a really good point. Medical school is constantly you're going, going, going and taking test after test. It's very intense. And I think having a, a period like this to, to reset is also beneficial. I think we talk less about some of the positive aspects of quarantine. So let's talk about your program and how you've helped with medical student burnout. Sure. Yeah. So I think in you know recent years, burnout and burnout prevention are the, the billion dollar questions that everyone is asking. And from our side, we have at least one proposed solution. Kate and I are part of a greater team of students at our institution who, uh, with the support of our faculty and administration, are in the third year of a resiliency curriculum for all of our students. So as a bit of background for people who may not know, resiliency is defined as both a trait and the process by which people can overcome challenges in their life. You know, when you apply this to the context of medical education, we believe that resiliency can be taught and strengthened just as much as someone's ability to do a really good physical exam. And we also view this skill set as um, an integral part of a physician's toolkit in modern healthcare with all its, you know, increasing demands and burnout. So with that core principle in mind, we've implemented a curriculum that helps our students enhance resiliency by using evidence-based skills like personal value alignment and CBT, as well as concepts like mindfulness, the growth mindset, and learned optimism. And how has the program been received by the medical students? Yeah, it was really important for us to collect data and feedback in quantitative and qualitative forms from the beginning, because we know that medical students' time is limited and you know, we don't want to be putting something additional on their plate if it's not helpful and acknowledging that we're still kind of early stages, but we're trying to constantly adapt the curriculum based on feedback. So right now we're in the sort of end stages of collecting data, at least for this first stage for the first three years. And it's been received really well um, as part of the mandatory curriculum. Our preliminary results are really promising. So we're really excited to kind of write that up in a more formal way and share it with the medical community. And so what's the what's the format like for most of these sessions? Is it essentially integrated into like regular lecture periods or is this something more small group based? So right now, as it stands, it's a near peer mentorship model where we have six sessions throughout the first two years. So the preclinical curriculum and with the help of the psychiatry department at Westchester, we train these mentors on the curriculum that we've developed. And then they in turn, like say three mentors would facilitate discussion and teach a group of 20 students on the topic of the session. I think the more that we're able to do any type of research to try to further it, I think it's fantastic. And, and you guys are doing a great job with it. I want to get your guys' honest opinions on resiliency when it comes to 
burnout in the fact that I think some of the knocks against resiliency research is such that there are a lot of systemic factors that don't have anything to do with resiliency that could be contributing to burnout. So how do you respond to people that say that resiliency research is a little bit limited in that aspect? We would totally agree that it's a limitation and one that we've tried to take into consideration. And we definitely would not want to imply that any curriculum like ours would solve all of the challenges that some of the shortcomings of our current healthcare system or even medical education system present and ways in which they cause stress for students. And it doesn't mitigate the responsibility that we all have to try and advocate to improve the system and you know, do things like ensure appropriate equipment in a pandemic, things like that. So we also acknowledge you can be the most resilient person alive and still feel stress. For us, we see this as part of a larger effort to kind of combat this problem and not the only solution. And I do think that reducing the stigma and opening up the conversation is one way to kind of shed light on some of those problems. And it's something that we've spoken about as medical students, especially when you're first getting into the clinical environment, you're so at the bottom of the totem pole that you you know, sometimes feel like you don't have any ability to impact some of the ways in which you think the system could be better. And so, like you said, when we, if we can build some of these skills and practices and mindsets and culture early on in medical school, then hopefully as physicians, especially in these hugely distressing times like this pandemic, we can all kind of practice mental hygiene together and and speak openly about the challenges. And I think that the question you pose is actually a really interesting one in the sense that a lot of resiliency research has difficulty measuring what the outcome is. Because of course, traditional clinical science research focuses on mitigating negative outcomes. So you can you know, administer a depression screener or an anxiety screen and see how that impacts. But a lot of these things that we talk about, about learned optimism and um, you know, mindfulness, it's not about, not just about less depression, but it's all also about these positive values that you teach. And that's something that we're actively working to try to understand better and try to capture better with our program. Yeah, absolutely. And just to add to what Andy's saying, I think it's so important to start at the stages of medical school because I think building resiliency is so key to being able to function, you know, while you're a resident and you know, further than that when you're in attending and practicing. And so I think this is like very crucial, a crucial time period during which we can try to start to change medical education. I think we got some good material that you guys talked about. You guys are really doing amazing work and you guys are really courageous for actually coming on and really sharing your stories about personal encounters or experiences with seeking help as clinicians. I think it's great and I think we need more of you guys to be able to share so that we can begin to shift the spectrum so that it gets a little bit more normalized to be able to talk about this stuff. So really, like, I really want to thank you guys for finding us and coming on the show. And thank you both so much for what you're doing at the resident level and raising some voices from out in the field and having us on as medical students. Drinking Burnout is a podcast about furthering the discussion of clinician burnout and recognizing the resilience and hard work that many clinicians regularly demonstrate. Nothing we say on this show should be taken as medical or psychiatric advice. All of the opinions expressed on this podcast are solely our own and do not reflect those of our employer.